If you have your Bibles, let's, let's jump into Ephesians chapter 5. Um, part of uh, my life story is wrapped up in this text. And, um, you know, there's two ways to live the Christian life. One is to conform to circumstance and live within the frail human nature confines that we set up. In other words, play it safe. And the other is to be transformed by the Spirit, to live far above what my natural ability would be. And it kind of reminds me when Ezekiel was talking about the water flowing from the temple in Ezekiel 47, and it says water to the ankles, and then to the knees, and then to the, the waist until you can barely keep your balance, and then, and then you're carried by the river. And it's a beautiful picture because in a way, it outlines kind of what Paul is going to express here in verse, uh, well, 15 through 21. Mainly, we're going to be looking at 18 through 21. But this aspect of being under the influence of the Spirit and how deep do you want to go? I, I mean, you're taking the step into the ankle deep or the knee deep or the waist deep or if you're just crazy enough like your pastor to just jump in and let the river take you wherever it takes you. And that's really ministry. It's scary. Uh, your life, uh, you know, playing it safe is what most people do. But I want to give you a good reason why to not play it safe. And, and why I also see in this room, you know, it's your Wednesday night. Not everybody comes out on Wednesday night. Sunday morning is the big service. Uh, but the reality is I, I don't see a few people here. I see, I see thousands and thousands represented here from the people that God is going to use you. And you don't know it yet, but he's going to use you to touch in some way or another. And even if it's just being faithful like a, like a Kimball, who was a shoe salesman, to reach that young kid, D.L. Moody, who reached the world. So God, his ways are not our ways. And so we just need to be filled. So I, I'm, re I'm reminded of the missionary, Herb Jackson, who he, he kind of inherited this missionary car. And, you know, missionaries kind of a tight budget. The car just barely uh, worked. Uh, but it had um, a kind of a weird thing, and the guy that was passing on the car to him said, listen, uh, it doesn't start. You have to kind of mess with it a little bit. Uh, the only thing you can do is, um, you know, park on a hill so that you can jump start it, or you're going to need someone to help push you. Uh, that's the only way you can get this thing started. So, um, you know, after a few years of doing this little dance with this car and always having to make sure he was on a hill or getting a push. A new missionary came and he was passing that old car onto the new missionary and he was going to move on and he was given all this explanation of this quirky car and uh, the guy says, really, you know, that's kind of strange. So let me look at it. He opened the hood and he tinkered a little bit in there and he goes, wait, I think I found something. And uh, he tightened something and that thing started right up. It was a loose connection. And it kind of reminds me of a lot of Christians' lives. We expend a lot of energy and try to get really clever to try to keep going. And when oftentimes it's just our connection with that source of power in life is just, it's a little tweaked. And we just, we just, we don't need to jumpstart. What we need is just to be connected. Uh, so a loose connection kept him from putting that power to work. So I want to look at this um, aspect of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, and uh, verse 15, just to lead into this, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. We can certainly relate with that today. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts uh, to the Lord, and giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, that when it comes to the work of the Spirit of God, you know, I, you guys are a spirit-filled church. You're blessed with a pastor that does not want to walk in his own energy. He knows, it's kind of like every pastor gets up in the pulpit and kind of thinks, you know, I really studied hard for this. I think I got this. I think I understand what you're trying to say, Lord. But you're God. You know who's going to be here. You know their unique circumstances. You know things about this passage that it would take me a thousand years to even unwrap. So all I can do is I throw my little loaves and fishes out there. And Lord, unless you multiply it, I got nothing. So this is what our lives are really. It's like we, but we're faithful to bring the loaves and fishes. To us, it seems nothing. Maybe to what you think you have to offer in the kingdom of God means very little. But you never know how God can multiply it. I'm reminded of, you know, the Lord told his disciples, look, it's going to be far better that I go away. Because if I don't go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be your helper. He'll, you know, he'll, if I depart, I'll send him to you. Well, one night I was putting my daughter to bed. She was about seven years of age, and I'd, I'd read the scriptures to her a little bit. I'd pray with her. And I'll never forget this, this sigh that came out of her mouth. She goes, it's not fair, Daddy. I go, what? She goes, well, the disciples get to see Jesus, and we don't get to see him. Now, that can really put you on the spot as a parent. But the Lord just gave me kind of a quick understanding of what he was trying to say, or what, she, what he was trying to say to her. And it was simply this. I says, well, honey, you know, when Jesus was with his disciples, he was limited to just be with those 12 and the few people he was there. But there was a whole world that needed to hear about him. So he said it was better that he goes away than he sends the Holy Spirit because now the Holy Spirit can be right here, the very presence of God. Because if, if you were back in the time of Jesus with the disciples, and, or let's say you had to divide Jesus' time today among the millions and billions of people in the world, in his 30 years of ministry, you know how much time you'd have with him? Like maybe a half a second. Jesus, ah, time's up. Next. <laughs> But because he's present right here through the Spirit of God, he's right here with you. And it was so cool to kind of picture that. And, and, and I thought also, you know, when I think about um, God gives us, I think about a father teaching his son how to ride a bike. By the way, I learned a secret on that one. If you want to know, I'll tell you later. But, um, you know, typically a father could do a couple of things. Father could say, here's a book on how to ride a bike, kid. Figure it out and hope it works out for you. Now, in a way, you know, the Lord has given us his word. But his word by itself, in not in the crucible of life, is sometimes difficult for us to apply or understand. So then Jesus comes along. And, of course, now the next thing for a father says, well, okay, watch, son. I'm going to get on the bike. I'm going to show you how to do it. And so you show your child how to ride a bike. But still... That's great, but it's not enough. It's when you get your child on the bike and you hold on to it and you start them off and you let them get the feel of it and they get that balance. And that in a sense is kind of like you have the word of God, you've got Jesus as the example, but with the Holy Spirit, it's practical. 
that he gets you on the bike. Now, here's the challenge for you tonight. Get on the bike. Because if you don't get on the bike, you're never going to learn. And to the degree that you take steps of faith, it's usually the degree that we see the work and the power of the Spirit of God. Now, we all believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We, we love the fact that you know, we can't do it and we acknowledge, Lord, fill me with your Spirit, fill me with your gifts. The baptism of the Spirit, the immersion of the Spirit, essential for the life of a believer. But I think the challenge for us oftentimes comes to the practical. Because the big mistake we make oftentimes is that we're waiting. Uh, you, you know, we hear Jesus said to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the power comes on high. And we misinterpret that for us in the sense that we've got to now tarry and wait. No, when the Spirit of God came, all you need to do is ask now and he will fill you. It's kind of like when the water came out of the rock, the second time you don't have to strike the rock again, just ask. So the idea is that we are not really having to wait. Um, it's not that complicated. Uh, in fact, that kind of sets people off where they're waiting to feel something. And um, I got news for you. You know, the, the, the Holy Spirit has given us power to be as witnesses. And we don't really need that power in our gatherings. You know, he's not going to waste a lot of his dunamis, his power upon us, that we might feel good. And I don't know about you, but I rarely feel empowered until I take a step of faith where I need the power. Very rarely will I have that anointing where I just sense, I'm going to go talk to that person. Most of the time it's, I take that step forward and I put it out there and if I crash, I crash. But oftentimes the Lord comes through when I just take that step. So, you know, the Lord obviously sent His Spirit to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He sent the Spirit of God uh, to be, to fill us with His gifts. Of, you know, but here there's a different sense. You know, there's, in Acts chapter 2, they were all filled with the Spirit. That's something God did. But let's look closely at this. He, this is something He's actually commanding us or telling us to do. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or excess but be filled with the Spirit. So this is something we're responsible to do. It's different than that immersion of the Spirit. This is a daily yieldedness that we decide just how deep we're going to go in the water, if you will. And the exhortation is that, you know, look, why would he even compare alcohol with the Spirit anyway? It's not that the Ephesians had problems with alcohol. I don't think they did. I don't think that was the issue. I think the issue is that it's a great contrast and comparison. Alcohol is a, is a tranquilizer. It's a downer in a way. But it starts by going up, which, which is what makes drugs very, uh, what makes a drug very addictive is the high up and then the crash. If you have a high up without the crash, it's usually not an addictive drug. But if you look at heroin, opioids, and all that stuff, it's a high up and then it's a crash. And the crash sets you up to get that addiction. And this is also why, just as an aside, men who are Christians struggle a lot more with addictions to pornography than non-Christian men. 
And the reason is non-Christian men, pornography is just like, that's just normal. Everybody, you know, it's just normal stuff. It's not a big deal. There's no crash. But with a Christian, he knows it's wrong. And he has that shame and that guilt after he satisfies himself. And after he has that up and that oxytocin release, then he has the crash. Highly, highly addictive for Christians, which is why you've got to really be wise on that. And um, one of the ways to overcome that is either don't even, don't just, you've got to fight that battle. But I talked with some of the guys from Covenant Eyes at a recent conference out in California, and they never heard this before, but I said, you know, uh, my experience as a young man, I, I would go through this every two-week thing. You know, I'd, I'd be doing really good, and then I'd stumble. And then I'd feel so horrible, and I'd feel like God is not, he's done with me. Who am I? Why? He'd never want to use me again. I'm just, I, I'd go through that shame and that guilt, and I'd be good for a couple of weeks, and then, then I'd stumble again. And it was, a, it was a thing that kept going, and I didn't understand that break. And I'll never forget one particular time. I'm being very honest here, because this is the world we live in. Um, I stumbled, and I felt like the Holy Spirit says, so are you going to go through a whole two weeks of punishing yourself and beating yourself up and you know, reminding of all your shame? And, the, and, and he, he goes, I paid for that already. Why don't you bring that to me? And it was the weirdest thing to thank the Lord for his forgiveness right after. And it, it, was re, it, was, it was gone. And it was like, thank you, Jesus. And the wild thing is, the addiction left, too. All of a sudden, I broke that chain of that crash after. And the wild thing is, it doesn't have the addictive power. So, you know, for every young man's battle, this is the issue. And I'll, I'll tell you, this is something you've got to control. But this is about the contrast with wine, though. Wine does give you a sense of euphoria. It gives you a sense of, I feel great. I, I can conquer the world. I, I'm in, un, un, uninhibited. I'm the life of the party. I get a few drinks under me, and I can, I can, I can really go for it. But then you have that crash, then you have that excess, then it, then it destroys your life. The Spirit of God also gives you a sense of, of uplifting, a sense of you're above yourself, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And it's a powerful picture. So when he speaks about this, this is really the, the key. Is like It's power to overcome in a very real way. Now again, there's a difference between the baptism and the filling simply because the ter terms of the same filled. The idea here is that when you have, like for example, people like John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zacharias, the Bible describes that they were people filled with the Spirit, and then you see them experience a special endowment. That simply is the difference. Um, the special endowment of power you will see when God lifts you up, empowers you for something, then you kind of set you down again. But that is, that is something God does. And he does that supernaturally, and he does that quite apart from you in a sense. He's going to use you in a way that you like. He gives, you've probably experienced that. He's given you the words in a conversation you never knew you had. And, and you sense this boldness that you never knew you had. And wow, where did that come from? 
But on a general daily basis, we are all responsible to be yielded. And that's what this word is kind of implying. Because life in the Spirit is a very personable, a personal life. Uh, life in the Spirit is a positive life. Life in the Spirit, it's exhilarating. Again, why do people drink? Because they want to forget about their problems. Life in the Spirit, all of a sudden, all the things that you're struggling with mean nothing in comparison to the big picture He shows you. And it's like so freeing from all your burdens. But here's the real challenge. And I want you to think about this for a minute. I know when I am filled with the Spirit but I don't always know when I'm not. I know when I'm filled, but I don't always know when I'm not. Now, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Because there are times when you know you know His presence is here, but what happens is over time, we, we tend to leak that power out in a sense. Not that, not that He leaves us, but that we're not taking a step of faith. We're not putting ourselves in a place where we really need His power. And so it just diminishes without us noticing. And then when we need it, we're kind of like, uh, what happened? I found that these next three verses, after being filled with the Spirit, verse 19, 20, and 21, give us what I would call a good test to see whether at any given time we're yielded under His influence, which is a handy thing to know. Again, this doesn't mean the Holy Spirit leaves you. He's always present with you. Uh, it's our consciousness of Him that is key. In fact, in times of revival, that's exactly what happened. There was a sense of the consciousness of God that just pervaded so powerfully. Um, I remember Evan Roberts talking about the Welsh revival, and he traced it. Uh, he's trying to figure out where this all started. And all of his meticulous research, Dr. E. J. Edwin Orr traced it to something that was quite interesting. There was a Sunday school in a particular Welsh village that had about 17 kids in it. And um, the teacher asked the students, you know, what does Jesus mean to you? And one little boy said, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Another, another child says, Jesus died for my sins. And they were all factual. And then one little girl raised her hand and she said, I love Jesus with all my heart. And there was a presence and a stillness that just came over and it's just a sudden awareness of God's presence filled that room. And it created a chain reaction. It started going to the other families and eventually, you know, the, the revival in the Welsh revival, it's one of the most remarkable revivals that in, our, in church history. Um, God did it. In fact, it was so pro profound. Evan Roberts, who, who basically, um, you know, felt this burden to go back from his education in Bible college to go back to his home church, and he told the principal, "I need to go. Um, I need to go preach a sermon. You know, I need to. I need to preach in my home church." And the principal says, "Well, you know, that's a very odd thing. Uh, I, I'll let you go if you really sense that." So he goes, and he basically imagine if you if one of your young students came from Bible college and said, uh, Pastor, you know, Tyler, I, I need to preach the service, you know. And you'd be like, uh, okay, uh, well, God, I, I, I'm a little, he was a little nervous about letting this guy to say anything. So he said, I'll tell you what, um, 
come to Sunday night and uh, maybe I'll just, I'll say whoever wants to stay afterwards. And so that's what he did. He had, he had Evan Roberts come Sunday night after he gave the message. He said, listen, uh, young Evan's back from college. He felt God gave him a word to say. If you care to stick around, um, you know, he's going to share to you. And so a, a few people stuck around, you know, 15 or 16 people stuck around. And he said this little sermon. He, he basically said, God, God's given me just three words for us. And the words were very simple. It says, put away any known sin, put away any doubtful habit, and obey the Spirit promptly. And that was his message. And it was so simple, but something resonated with the people. And it, it struck them. And again, he, he ended up staying, and the church started being filled. It was like one of those things where only the Holy Spirit can do. But the key for it was he was yielded. He was willing to take that step, and crazy as it seemed. So how can we know? Well, the first thing is, look at verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. One of, one of the first things I believe the Lord does in us, he certainly did in me when I responded to the gospel. I had... I had uh, made a vow when I was backslidden. I was 17 years old. Uh, I was out camping with my friends in Ludington, Michigan, and I went out with my dog, you know, for a long walk in the woods, and we got lost, and it was getting dark, and I was freaking out. And uh, I had intended to party that whole weekend and you know, just do whatever I wanted to do. And now I am lost in the woods and I'm terrified and I got scared and I never, I'll never forget this. For the first time in a long time, I prayed, God, if you get me out of here, I'll, I'll, I'll give my life back to you. So my dog was worthless. Come on, go find the, you know, out of here. The dog did no, no help there. But the weird thing is I just started walking down a particular trail and two minutes later, I'm back at camp. And I promptly forgot that vow and went about my weekend as I intended all along. But God didn't forget. So now, flash forward, I'm, I'm at Michigan State University. I'm, you know, I had a D1 scholarship for wrestling. I, I was chemical engineering. I mean, I had this whole career plan. And man, I'll tell you, that first year, I got beaten down. It was like everything went wrong. Socially, I went from the top dog in high school to a nobody in a big university. And, you know, I, it was just, it was horrific. All I could think of is I got so depressed and so empty. It was suicidal. I was, I was thinking about that. I was, I was seeing things. I was involved in some occult before. It, just, it was just very, very difficult. And God just reached down. And a brother came to share his faith with me when I was on break. I prayed the prayer again. And then I came back again, just not really sensing anything went to the wrestling practice and there was one wrestler who just seemed to be always happy all the time and we we're getting beat up in the wrestling room right i mean you're the the new guys and i'll never forget asking him in the locker room why are you so happy all the time and he goes you really want to know i go yeah he said i'm a follower of jesus and of course i had the little cool poker face like uh, you know oh that that's cool that's cool for you you know i, I i'm like no i don't want to hear that <laughs> So I left, but I couldn't get that joy that he had, that hope that he had out of my mind. 
And I remember praying on the way home from wrestling practice, God, if you can do it, I'm ready. Here I am. And that, it was almost like a weight lifted off my shoulders. And that was my beginning, a cold, wintry night in 1976. But then it's like learning how to grow, learning, how, learning about these things. All the old things I learned, I memorized all these verses when I was a young boy, but now it's relearning, learning how to trust him. And, um, and then kind of that song we sang, you know, I need God, I need this. Well, that was me. I needed not like, okay, answer my, you know, I thought, okay, I'm gonna win the Olympics and I'm gonna testify, Jesus helped me, you know. I that's what I thought my ministry was gonna be. And uh, the Lord said, no, not, not gonna go there. So uh, all those doors were closing, but I remember just sensing, God, I need to know. So I ended up going to England on a, on a you know, one of my semesters with my men who, a man who mentored me, he was the guy that knocked on my door when he found out I just received the Lord and he got me plugged into the campus group and I was growing like crazy. So he was gonna go to England and I was oh, what are you going to England for? I, I wanna go. He goes, you can't go. I've been planning this trip forever. You don't even have the money. You, you don't. I go, I'm gonna make it happen. So I did, I was determined. So I got over there, but it turned out to be a very tough, depressing trip because I had to confront a couple of things that we all have to confront in our lives. One is that, um, I want God to do what I want me, him to do. And the Lord was basically saying, no, you're, you're gonna do what I want you to do. And so I became desperate, okay, I need to know God. And I remember just praying one, the last weekend we were there, God, do I go back to college? Do I go out to Southern California and get involved in the church my sister found called, uh, what was it, Calvary Chapel? And um, I need to know. And I got that answer. I was so desperate, the Lord clearly said, you're not going back to finish your degree in chemical engineering, you're not going back to the wrestling room, you're gonna to go to Southern California, you're gonna get involved in that church. Now he told me more, but I, I, uh, I forgot most of that other until the friend who I went with on that trip, uh, who retired from his job as a civil engineer and moved, back out to, moved out to New Jersey with his wife and now is on my staff the guy who knocked on my door and got me plugged in, but he filled me in on a few other things that the Lord told me because when I came down from that mountain and I told the Jewish professor, you know, cause he was saying, uh, well, what are you guys gonna do for the rest of your life? You know, what's your plans? And I raised my hand and I said, I'm not going back to college. I'm going out to Southern California. I'm gonna get trained in ministry. I'm gonna go plant a church. It's gonna be bigger than John Stotts in England. I'm gonna have a radio station. And, I'm gonna, and my friend was like, oh, shut up. <laughs> Oh, he thinks you're crazy. Don't speak. Shut up, Lloyd. Shut up. So I had totally forgotten that part of the story. Because when I did go to Southern California, I remember visiting Costa Mesa, hearing Chuck Smith, and I was just so like, wow, God, this is amazing. Then I went up with Raul Reese, because that's where my sister was going, Calvary West Covina. And uh, Raul Reese, you know, um, he, um, I, 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 as soon as I walked into church, I knew I was home. And God began to open some doors. Uh, I, got, I came on staff as a young intern at 21, and I got an opportunity to learn ministry for the next five years. And, but in those five years, I will say this, any personal ambition I ever had, whether big church, radio station, all this other nonsense, God beat the crap out of me. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I remember going out to New Jersey was 
People would say, are you going to go plant a church? I'd say, well, God plants churches. I'm going to start a Bible study, and we'll see what the Lord does. But I, 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 don't, I didn't have any of that personal ambition. I was determined, like Chuck said, I'm going to make those 10 people that might come the most well-loved and well-taught 10 Christians in all of New Jersey. That's what I'm going to do. My friend kept calling me, though, as the church was growing. Hey, how big is your church? I'd be like, Dude, why do I? I don't care. Would you stop asking me that question? I don't count the numbers. It's not that important. But he kept pestering me. And so I'd tell him. And, then, and he never told me until he came to New Jersey. He goes, the only reason he kept calling me because he remembered that vision. And he wanted to see it. He was watching. He got a radio station. He got a church. It was a bigger than John Stott's. And he was blowing his mind. Like, this crazy kid, it actually happened. But, you know, when it comes to God using us, though, he's got to empty us of our stinky self. He, he can't. He's not going to share the glory with anyone. And I'll tell you, if you touch the glory, <laughs> he will beat the crap out of you. For your, for your sake, for your sake. Because it's, it's not healthy to touch the glory. So, so here's the thing. How, how, can I, how can I just keep putting my loaves and fishes out and really be dependent upon him? And by putting your loaves and fishes out, you are putting yourself out there. I mean, coming out to New Jersey was a big step. I mean, it was called the Graveyard of Churches. And I'm telling you, it was a barren wasteland when I came out there. We visited about a dozen churches and only to conclude that, well, it was too early to start a church, but man, uh, let's just do a Bible study on Sunday mornings and invite a few people over, which is what we did. And then the Lord just kept adding to it. But the real wild thing is this idea of speech. You know, God gives us the gift of speech. Because he speaks, we speak. We can communicate in words. Uh, but sometimes what comes out of our mouth is not really glorifying to him. You know, oftentimes it's complaining. Oftentimes it's bitterness or it's, or it's you know, frustration or, or angry or impetuousness. The fool speaks all that's on his mind. And opinion and opinions, people get so opinionated. Um, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge for pastors is everybody's got an opinion about everything. And, and you try to, if you try to satisfy people in that regard, you're going to be serving people. And by the way, in the Old Testament, that was the curse. The priests that were disobedient had to serve the people, but the ones that were faithful got to minister to the Lord. And so uh, I love that's the first role as a pastor is we need to minister to the Lord. I, it's like what... Paul or what uh, Moses was told by his uncle or his uh, father-in-law, you know, um, stand before God, bring all the problems to the people before God. That's the role of a pastor is you bring the people before the Lord in prayer and you, you let God do the work in them that only he can do because you can't do. And the wild thing is this idea of speech. I, I always remember this illustration, by the way, too. This is a kind of fun um, there's a little bird that froze up in the, you know, usually birds fly south for the winter, but this bird got a little bit late start and he got a little cold. And he's kind of freezing, uh, couldn't quite get off the ground and it looks like not, it's going to work out for the little bird until a cow comes by and uh, a little bird's frozen there. The cow drops a pile of manure right on top of him. <laughs> but while he was in that manure, it was so warm and toasty. It thawed him out. So he began singing for joy, you know, like, I'm, 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 I'm happy again. Well, a nearby cat heard the bird and came over to investigate, found the bird there, and promptly ate him. 
Now, before you feel sorry for the little bird, there is a moral to the story. First is, not everybody who dumps a pile of manure on you is necessarily your enemy. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, not everybody who digs you out of a pile of manure is necessarily your friend. But the most important lesson is, when you're in the manure, keep your mouth shut. And that is probably the biggest challenge. It's our words, our, our lips, they flap way too much about all number of things. And I can tell, by the way, I was on my way to a men's conference to speak on this passage and, and being yielded to the Spirit. And in New Jersey, you know, there, there is a state law. You drive right, pass left, yeah, which everybody in New Jersey ignores, especially the little old ladies. They love to just drive in that left lane and block you in. And uh, just as an aside, those who go slow in the left lane cause more accidents than everybody else. So don't do that. <laughs> So I'm behind a little lady, and I'm like, lady, come on, where did you get your license? McDonald's, you know, I'm talking to the car in front of me. I'm like, really frustrated. Come on, lady, honk, you know. I can't believe it. And I'm like, I've, I'm, I've got a bad, my, what's coming out of my mouth? Well, <laughs> the wild thing is, the Holy Spirit kind of says, uh, you're going to be talking about what passage now, being filled with the Spirit? <laughs> and immediately, I, you know, you're so right. And so I just began to... Uh, pray for the woman, and, and as I did that, it's an amazing thing. All of a sudden, all the angst about this or that, I began to thank the Lord for her being in my way, because it was the very thing that caught my attention, that I'm not filled. And the idea is that I was aware that what was coming out of my mouth was just like a little ding. You know, you're not under my influence right now. That's you. And so I immediately calibrated. I said, wow, thank you, Lord. You're right. And uh, I changed my tone immediately. And thank you, Lord, fill me. And you know what an amazing, the rest of the trip that was. Uh, nobody got under my skin. No, it, all of a sudden, it didn't matter anymore. The point is, speech, this is a kind of speech that's going to be connected with being under the influence of the Spirit. You're speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. It really is. You see connections now that it's God. Like, he's, you catch a red light instead of like, ah, oh, that stupid car going so slow they could have made it. Why aren't they paying attention? Now it's like, Lord, thank you. You've got a plan for this. I don't know what you're doing. And, and you, all of a sudden, you just calm down. It's like this, this gives us an indication. What a great test. What's coming out of your mouth? It's an indication. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just realize, wow, thank you, Lord, for showing me that. Now, the second thing is similar to it in verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is a part of your speech, but it's also more part of your attitude. And I know we're probably familiar with 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where it says, in everything give thanks. Now, I can understand that. I can understand that, you know, the broken leg, there's something good in there somewhere that's going to be good turning into good, but I don't thank the Lord for the broken leg. I just thank Him in it, right? And then I read this, and I go, whoa. Giving thanks always 
for all things. Now let's just say on the surface right here, uh, and the onset, impossible, it makes no sense. Who does that? This is crazy, unless, unless you're aware of a promise that God works all things together for good. So that how could we say that's bad? One of my fun illustrations is the man who had a very valuable horse inherited from his, his parents. And um, you know the neighbors knew this poor man couldn't take care of that amazing horse. And he could sell that for a lot of money and live quite handsomely the rest of his life. So they'd say, old man, you can't take care of that horse. You know, you're going to lose the horse or he's going to get stolen and you know, you're going to be out for everything. You should sell that horse and uh, you'll be fine. And he says, oh, I can't sell this horse. It's like part of the family. And they said, well, you're crazy. Well, sure enough, a couple weeks went by and the horse was not in the stable. And the neighbor said, oh, see, we told you this is bad now. You've lost everything. And the old man says, say not that this is bad. Say only the horse is not in the stable. Whether this is bad or good, only God knows. Well, he thought, you're nuts, old man. You lost your horse. But sure enough, two weeks later, the horse had not been stolen. It had only run away, and it came back with 12 more wild horses. He corralled those horses, and the neighbor says, wow, old man, you were right. This is good. Now you've got 12 more horses. You can break them in with a little bit, sell the money. You're going to be great. You can take care of your horse now. This is good. And the old man said, say not that this is good. Say only that I have 12 more horses. Whether this is good or bad, only God knows. Oh, you're crazy. Of course this is good. But sure enough, a couple weeks later, his son was trying to break in one of the horses, fell off and broke his leg. And the neighbor says, wow, old man, you're right. This is bad. Now, now your son, you're, you're going to really be in worse shape now. He's the only one that could do this. And now you don't even know what to do. You're going to eat all your, this is bad. And the old man says, say not that this is bad. Say only that my son broke his leg. Whether this is bad or good, only God knows. Well, now they're beginning to wonder. Two couple of weeks later, their nation went to war against another nation. And all the sons of these villagers had to go to war. And they said to the old man, we, we may never even see our son again, but your son with his leg broken, he can't go. You've got your son. This was good. And the man says, say not that this is good. <laughs> say only that I have my son. Now, you could go on and on and on with this. And the illustration is we judge way too soon. We get idea in our mind, oh, this is bad. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is bad. And we complain or we're happy. Or we complain or we're happy. And the reality is part of being under the influence of the Spirit is to kind of lift above that stuff. And to realize that God has a bigger plan. He knows what he's doing. And Lord, I'm just going to thank you in advance. In fact, I have to say that that was what gave me a sense of God's plan and purpose for my life. Because when I was out in England, desperately trying to figure out, God, what do you want for my life? I also confess the other thing. Not only did I not know, but there was one more problem that I had to contend with. And that is all these people that came on this trip, I didn't really like them. In, in fact, I didn't like a whole lot. I didn't like them at all. And then I felt convicted. I don't love these people. And I remember confessing to God, God, I don't love these people. Would you give me love for people? I didn't like people anyway. I was definitely, um, I don't know what I was. I was this probably narcissistic fool and just, you know, I liked myself. And if you liked me, then I liked you. But the wild thing was God uh, gave me a love for people on that, that 
that same weekend. And he gave me that calling. And the wild thing is that God used that loneliness there. He used that, that difficulty to do something in me. And, but it even goes deeper than that. When I went out to California, and the first year, God was blessing. You know, he was using me in ways that was so exciting. Uh, but God had to humble me as well. Um, my overseer, who was Rawls' assistant, uh, he was my boss. And I'll never forget confronting him. I'm 21 years old. He's like 40-something. And I confronted him because he used to tell us all the time, never be alone with a woman in your office. But I'd see him do it all the time. So at 21, I walked up to him and I said, hey, Mark, you know, you, you always tell us not to be in our office with a woman, but you do it all the time. And he goes, none of your business. I says, well, I'm going to go tell Rawl. And he says, you go over my head. I'll get you out of this ministry faster than you can blink. And God gave me a holy boldness that said, you didn't put me in the ministry. God did, and only God can remove me. And I walked away pretty proud of myself, <laughs> not knowing how naive I was. He made my life a living hell for the next four years. Rawl didn't, I mean, he would tell Rawl about me. Lloyd's doing this, Lloyd's doing that. And Rawl didn't trust me. Rawl didn't like me. My own pastor, and I knew he didn't like me. And then I got all the dirty jobs. When all the young interns were coming in, they were getting the good jobs. I was still doing all the dirty jobs. And um, God used that, though, more than you know. I would love to be able to find Mark one day and thank him. He ended up eventually getting exposed for adultery, and he left. But I would thank him because he made me keep my eyes on the Lord. So many of the painful things, as I look back, some of the worst things that happened to me. When I was three, um, my father had left. My old three older sisters and I, he had left. He was kind of a womanizer. Uh, my mother, under a lot of strain and stress, uh, died of a heart attack at 31. I was four years old. And that definitely was one of the worst. I mean, that, I can't tell you how hard that was growing up without a dad, without a mom uh, in, the, in the, you know, the 60s. That was just very, very painful. God used that, though, to get raised by my grandmother who took me to church. And she instilled in those things in me. And she was a praying woman. And then, as I mentioned, I got into wrestling, you know, as a young guy. And I did very well at it. And I ended up getting the scholarship. But one of the things that hit me was I was seated number one in the state of Michigan. And I ended up going too low in weight. I got sick. I ended up, end, ended up taking fourth. It was like such a blow to my ego. And it was so hard. I can't describe. If you're an athletic athlete at that level, it's, like, it's hard. It was like painful, but God used that to humble me, to bring me to him. And then when he closed the doors in college, you know, um, I don't know what he wants me to do now. God used that angst to bring me out to get trained in ministry. So every, I, I think of the five of the worst things that happened to me, God turned into the, be the very best things. So I learned can't afford to be unthankful. You can't afford to complain. Uh, and that was very pointed out one time as a young man uh, on a tight budget as an intern, working, I mean, I was working in construction, making good money when I came on staff. Now I'm working on less a third of that. So I was just making ends meet and I get married on a very tight budget. We're really, we had to scrape together. We got all this food in the refrigerator. I'll never forget one time, you know, um, before she got pregnant, we, we had our refrigerator full of food. We're all happy. And, 
and the refrigerator was broke. The next morning we found, you know, the food was starting to go bad in the freezer, it's unthawed, and I'm like, I am so mad at God. I'm like, God, I've sacrificed to serve you, and this is what you do. And I was, I was just, I had a bad attitude. And, uh, you know, we scraped the money together, filled the refrigerator up again, some people helped us out. And, um, but two weeks later, the refrigerator broke again. And I'm not that smart, but I was not unmindful that God was trying to show me something. So I said, okay, God, obviously I missed the lesson the first time. What are you trying to say? What it, I'm, I'm just gonna thank you, I don't even know. And I just began to thank him for that refrigerator. I said, Lord, it's your refrigerator anyway, and it's your food, so who am I complaining? Look, if you wanna do this with your refrigerator, it's yours, thank you, Jesus. I don't know what you have in mind, but here I am. This is probably one of the greatest lessons for me because within an hour, a truck drove in our driveway with a bunch of stuff in it, including a refrigerator. A lady I'd promised months ago to store her stuff in our garage when she moved, she, that came that hour. And I said, hey, would you mind if I use your refrigerator till I get ours fixed? She goes, you know what? It's an old refrigerator, it worked great, you can have it. God gave us a refrigerator within an hour. You know what that did for me? That made me terrified to ever complain again. <laughs> And I tell you, I can't tell you how many times when things would go wrong, things would happen, instead of immediately reverting to I was like, okay, Lord, thank you. I don't know what you have in mind. I'm afraid to complain, because I'll just have to learn the lesson again. But, but the main thing is that thankfulness, I believe, is one of the biggest evidences that we are we're confident in God, we we're trust Him, and His Spirit is working. We're seeing His perspective. Even if we can't see, we're lifted above the circumstances. You know, the higher you go in a plane, the less fences and walls have to do with the scene. But when you're down at earth level, and every little thing's a barrier, and everything's a problem, and all this stuff's going on, and why is this happening, and do you hear yourself sometimes? When you do hear yourself, do this. Just stop and say, Lord, forgive me for complaining. Thank you for the mercies you've given me. Thank you. You're going to use this problem somehow. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it wasn't the news I wanted to hear from the doctor. It wasn't the news I wanted to hear from my boss. It wasn't the news that I wanted to hear from my family. But you know what? Lord, you're God. So thank you. Give me wisdom how to handle it. So your words, your attitude, ding, are you filled? Thing, are you filled? You, it gives you an indication, but probably the one that's most significant is the last one in verse 21. It's one of the hardest ones. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. You know, the world is, it runs on domination. It runs on control. I mean, what we're seeing in our culture right now is all about control. It's all about manipulation. It's all about getting you to do what they want you to do. And in ministry and in life, really with the Lord, it's the opposite. Jesus did not come as an emperor and dictate. He came as a servant to model. So this is the idea, and I, I think this is huge, because we can be very self-centered. We can be very, um, in marriage as well, as well as in ministry, um, self-seeking, self-assertive. 
lord it over people. We, want, we think getting control, getting power is it. In fact, that's the big mistake we make as Christians. Yes, we want to influence you know, uh, leaders in this nation to make decisions that are going to be good for the family. But the church has never done well when it has power and control. Um, look, look at the time when the Catholic Church you know, owned the world. They ran the world. How, how corrupt it became. The reality is that Jesus showed us how from the bottom you influence someone. And it's true in marriage, by the way, too. Listen, as a young man, as a young married man, I always thought that, you know, uh, being a leader, I had to make the decisions and, you know, I'm, I'm in control and uh, I'm going to tell, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And um, the reality is quite different. Because Jesus models something quite different with that. You see, as a husband, if you try to get control, you're going to lose influence. But if you have influence, guess what? You don't need control. I think of Chuck Smith, you know, he, there, there wasn't this big hierarchy or denominational head where he was dictating to us everything we're supposed to do. He modeled being a pastor. He modeled being a man of God. He modeled for us. He, he was an example. And when everything broke down between Calvary Chapel and someone got all the assets of Coastal Mason, got all that control and that power, I was actually quite happy that we still had the influence. We're going to follow his example. We're going to minister the word of God. They're going to tweak and do their own little new cool thing, you know, try to be relevant and whatever, but we're just going to be faithful with the word of God. And in the end, God has shown, there's, since Chuck passed, there's about a thousand more Calvary chapels under the association because God honors his word. And we don't need all those assets. We didn't need all that power. You don't need all that control. So this is key. You know, Yieldedness and submission to others is so key. Lot, remember Lot and Abraham? They had an issue. And Lot and Abraham had to separate. And Abraham says, look, the land can't handle all of our, I mean, God's blessed us so much, but it can't handle. So this is what we're going to do. Lot, you choose first where you want to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction. Now think of how crazy that is. God called Abraham to the land. What do you mean, Abraham? Tell Lot to take a hike. But instead, you see, he trusts God. And of course, Lot looked at the well-watered valleys of Sodom and Gomorrah, and ooh, I'm going down there. And God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes, I'll show you the land that I'm going to give you. You can't lose when you yield to others in your life. When you choose to be that servant, even when I was going through the doghouse, uh, so to speak, and the new interns were coming in, and I was given all the dirty jobs, you know, the Lord really showed me that I can't, I, I can't figure out how to make her all happy, and something's going on. I couldn't, I didn't know what was really, I didn't, I didn't realize what had happened. And, um, but I just began to be a servant to those other interns, helping them out, encouraging them, and not thinking of, you know, who's got what position. And, um, it was, it was about uh, 10 years ago. It took me that long. While we're on the association council, I said to Raul, I said, Raul, I have a question for you. You know, when, when, I, when I was on as an intern, you didn't like me. I know you didn't like me. And I knew that there were some issues there. I don't know why you kept me, but you did keep me. But I, I, I have a feeling why you didn't like me. Can I just mention a name? And I mentioned the name of the guy. And he goes, yeah, man, he did not like you at all. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, that was it. <laughs> But you know, the wild thing is, 
again, I thank God for that now because the Lord taught me so much in ministry that you could never learn in a school, you could never learn in a seminary. These things to me are like so powerful because love, love is vulnerable. When you love someone, you're gonna be hurt. You're gonna have your heart broken. You're, you're gonna be betrayed. I often tell young ministers, you know, yeah, you have a Paul. Everyone should have a Paul in their life, a mentor. Everyone should have a Timothy, someone you're pouring into. But you're not going to want to hear this. We also do need a Judas. We do need an Ahithophel, an Absalom. We do need a Demas who forsakes us and loves this present world. Because it helps us keep our eyes on the Lord and yield to one another, submit to one another in the fear of God. Years ago in the, in the great revival with the Whitfields and the Wesleys, different doctrine, but God blessed both of them. And uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield had invited the Wesleys over in his college to share with the students. And, and uh, in time, they began to steal the hearts of the students. Students began to accept their doctrine. And Whitfield knew that if he took that college back over, there'd be a big split. So he turned the college over to the Wesleys. A reporter asked him, what in the world were you thinking? I mean, that, that would have been named after you. That was your college. You established that. And you know what Whitfield said? Let the name of George Whitfield perish and the name of Jesus Christ be glorified forever. See, this is the kind of thing I really believe we need. And this is the work of the Spirit. And this is what he does. And so my prayer is... These three things, our speech, our attitude, and our relationships, will be a forever a little reminder whether at any given time we're under his influence. And if we're not, it just takes seconds to correct. You know, Lord, I acknowledge this. The problem is we don't recognize it that clearly, unless we're really paying attention. And so watch what's coming out of your mouth. Watch your attitude. And, and be careful about those relationships, whether in marriage, with your children, with other people, your coworkers, your people you go to school with. Um, learn how to be a servant. Learn how to be a blessing. Um, don't worry about yourself. And I always love one famous line when the Queen of England had asked a man to, you know, she needed some help in this business venture that was overseas, and he had run this business perfectly. And she said, I need you over here. And he was asked that, and he told one of his friends, I don't, I don't know if I can do this, because if I leave my business, you know, what's going to happen to my business if I go take care of that? And the man gave him a wise counsel. He says, if you take care of her business, she'll take care of yours. And I always think of that in my, when it comes to the Lord. You take care of the Lord's business in your life. He'll take care of your business. You never have to worry.